welcome back to Woe is Media. Listen, bam, 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 bam. listen, Annabelle back here. We're going to cover what went on this week in entertainment and in business. We got a cool mix of stories for you. I'm going to start us off by talking about what's been going on with um, some begruntled analysts at Goldman Sachs um, and how they have exposed the dirty underbelly that is investment banking and the torture that uh, banks put their poor employees through. So Ooh. we're going to talk about that. I know it's a little scandalous. And then we're also <laughs> going to talk about um, our boy Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, and the Google CEO, Pichai. I'm blanking on his first name at the moment. It's in my notes somewhere. But we're going to talk about their hearing with Congress that happened at the end of last week. So Alyssa, what have you got for us? Today, we will be talking about Little Nas X's newest song. I knew you were going to do, do Nas X. I knew it. Sorry about it. Already know all the words. Other than that, oh my gosh, all of a sudden, I'm so popular with my family. They need to be quiet. I'm busy. Sorry. <laughs> but other than that, I'm not going to say who, but we're going to talk about one of the beloved people in this world passing away and the impact that they had on my life but <laughs> i'm gonna leave it at that but animal stir us up all right so we'll get started um i called this story the goldman grumpies oh yes which i thought was appropriate so for those of you who don't know i feel like this has gone viral on non finance communities like within TikTok I've seen it on Twitter like it was on the news like pretty much wherever you get your uh your content from you've probably like at least seen this I would hope but if not we're here to fill you in so if you remember in our SPACs episode a couple weeks back where I kind of explained like the boom that was going on with SPACs and how they worked and how it's kind of just a shell company that's being used to raise money so that an acquisition or a merger can happen later. That is still very much a thing. And it is really taking its toll on the investment banks because this is kind of a business activity that requires the advising of investment banks for these SPACs to end up going public. Mm -hmm. So a lot of banks, and the focus of the story would be Goldman Sachs, they have just been so underwater with the amount of volume that they've had to deal with recently. There's a lot of demand for kind of these IPOs with the SPACs um, and for investment banks, these are their bread and butter. This is how they make their money. This is kind of how they get their notoriety. Like they want to do this. So it's exciting for them. But the problem is they don't have the teams really to support this demand. Uh-oh. Goldman in particular, they like to hire a very like lean team like they don't like to have too many people they would just rather have a small amount of people who work really really hard could you call it a lean mean banking machine i yeah i think you could indeed i Sorry. think that's a good way to put it thank you for joining <laughs> us there <laughs> but yeah so they basically are short-staffed and these four goldman analysts and for people who are not familiar with like the term analyst or how kind of the hierarchy of investment banks work, 
if you were an analyst, you're at the bottom of the food chain. <laughs> Everybody dumps on you. There are people above you who make significantly more money, have significantly more power, and they've been in the industry a long time and they don't let you forget it. Wow. It's a, yeah, it's kind of a toxic environment, to be honest. Wall Street is not, not the best place for people's mental health. Um, and that's basically what these Goldman analysts decide to make known to everybody. Mm. They put together a survey and they did this all anonymously, but they sent a survey out to some of the analysts and they wanted to know what is your mental health like now versus before you took this job as a Goldman Sachs analyst? What is your physical health like? How many hours do you sleep at night? What time do you tend to log off? How many hours a week are you working? Why are you laughing at me? Because <laughs> I can just imagine like <laughs> me filling out this form. <laughs> having some like exaggerated answer. With, Not like, even exaggerated. And be like, I feel strongly that I am working too hard. Is that what you would say? Yes. Okay. I mean, well, there'd be like tears on the paper. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's basically what the Goldman Sachs analyst said. So some of the stats we'll talk about today, they said that prior to working at Goldman Sachs, their mental health was about an 8.8 .8 out of 10. It's now 2.8 out of 10. Oh. Yeah. Big drop off there. Their physical health went from a 9.0 because keep in mind when you're an analyst, they typically hire you right out of college. So these people are like 21, 22. So like uh -huh. peak, peak physical prime, basically. So their physical health went from a 9.0 to a 2.3 out of 10. <gasps> they averaged between 95 and 110 hours of work a week, which if you don't take any days off, that's give or take 14 to 16 hours a day with no weekends, like every single day. And if you do take a, like a Sunday or Saturday, then it's even more obviously because math. And then they average about five hours of sleep a night. So they took all this data that came back from the survey. And as you do in investment banking, you put together what's called a pitch deck. <laughs> and it's basically something that you send out to potential clients. Um, your bankers would take it on the road with them to presentations and be like, this is everything Goldman Sachs can offer you. And here are some of our most recent deals that we worked on and look how fabulous we are. And you want to hire us. Terrible you, mental health. Yeah, exactly. So they put together a pitch deck with all of these statistics and be like, look what you did to us. Like you have ruined us basically. And they, instead of sending it internally, they leaked it to the news. Yeah, so power moves only. Basically, oh they God. thought it'd be a good way to get the attention of kind of the upper levels of management at Goldman Sachs to be like, okay, you know, it would give them a kick in the butt a little bit if it's kind of like public ridicule and everybody's like, why does anybody work here? This is yeah. terrible. These poor analysts. And it should be known that like, so I personally work in this field and I do not have this experience. Obviously I have time to do a podcast, so it's not nearly as bad as these people are suffering. I work in the industry, but it's like a different focus. So it's not nearly like to this extent and I don't work for Goldman Sachs. So it's, it's a little bit different. Um, but yeah, so, but I can say that a lot of their complaints I think are absolutely valid. There's definitely a lot of um, toxic behavior with the higher ups going on. I mean, they they can be very rude to the analysts, people at the bottom of the food chain. There's a lot of kind of late night 
things that they have to deal with because they don't want to deal with it. The higher ups don't, there's a lot of last minute changes that have to be made and it's just stupid little small details. And they're like, please fix, like please fix culture is a big thing in banking. Mm. Um, But yeah, I mean, some of the quotes also that were included in this deck was I've been through foster care and this is arguably worse. Yeah. I'm considering going to therapy. Let's see what else we got here. Oh my, my body physically hurts all the time. And mentally, I'm in a very dark place. <gasps> yeah, so these people are suffering. Oh my God. And you might be wondering, like, what that they chose this route. Why would they, why would they sign up for this? Why would anybody in their right mind sign up for this? And that's a good question, and it's a valid question. And the answer to that basically is. It really doesn't get much better than Goldman for investment banking. It's the prestige factor. It's basically like the Ivy Leagues of the investment banks. And if you survive there and you put in your time, you are going to have a lot of doors open to you. You will obviously have options to move up the ladder within Goldman. You can go somewhere else. And people know that you've survived at the best of the best and you did well at the best of the best. They want you on your team. So it makes you a very like attractive candidate. It's a lot of people call it the kingmaker promise. It's basically like you put your time in now and you really suffer and you'll become a king later. That's but very it, toxic behavior. It is toxic behavior. And a lot of it is, it's kind of like this cyclical thing, right? So this is always how the industry has been. Mm-hmm. And that's why the higher ups are so terrible because they started at the bottom and now they way up here and they're like, I had to do it. So you have to do it. But see, that's the same kind of thing when it comes to like uh, older generations getting angry when, you know, we fight for education, you know, like, oh, yeah. college should not be as expensive as it is. And like then the they're like, that you mean? yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. I couldn't think of the words, but they're like, well, I had to pay a lot. So you have to. And it's like, first of all, you have not paid near what some of us have. Right. And second off, you know, making things better for future generations <laughs> is how it should be. You don't want people to suffer the way you have. If you do, you're a sick individual. Right, exactly. And like, if we just kept up with that mentality about everything, we'd still be living in caves because that's what the people interested. Like progress is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And maybe if it's not necessarily fair for you, odds are there's something that was not fair to the people above you that worked Mm -hmm. out for you, you know? Like, I don't know. We have to stop this like perpetual cycle of just hazing people as kind of a rite of passage because it's clearly taking a really terrible toll on these poor analysts and their mental health and Mm -hmm. everything like that. So Goldman was obviously like super embarrassed by this and they're trying to- As they should be. Yeah, as they should be. Absolutely. And they're basically trying to cover their butts to address the problems because they were a little disturbed by this. So they're trying to basically bolster their hiring because like I said, they're short staffed. Um, they, they, these people clearly like need help. They can't handle all of this. They're trying to bolster their hiring. They're trying to transfer employees to some of the busier sectors that are going to need more help. Um, so just kind of like shifting and reallocating resources. Um, the analysts have also proposed that their hours be capped at 80 a week, which seems unreasonable when you think about the fact that they've been working 100 to 110 hours a week like that's obviously yeah. a big decline but that's still double what most people work absolutely yeah 80 versus like a standard 40 mm-hmm. so really that doesn't seem like too much to ask um 
And with all this kind of coming out in the news, other investment banks who compete with Goldman Sachs, they're basically working to be like, oh, look how nice we treat our junior team. Like Jeffrey's bank, for example, they have, um, they've set up like these special, really expensive gifts that they're gonna give their analysts. You can pick between a Peloton bike, an Apple products package, which includes an iPad Pro, the AirPods Pro, and the newest Apple Watch. Or you can pick between that, um, that mirror fitness home studio. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yes. Um, so those are being offered at Credit Suisse, which is another investment bank. They're giving all of their junior analysts $20,000 bonuses. Um, and then at Citibank, they are having no video call Fridays and they are having what they call city reset day, which is just a bank wide holiday where nobody's working. So I think this was ultimately a good thing, hopefully for the industry, but I hope that these end up being more permanent changes and not just things like short-term fixes, you know, because mm -hmm. I agreed clearly like corporate hazing and these unreasonable workloads and, you know, things of that nature, they're not going to be fixed with a Band-Aid. They need to really be kind of looked at on a more serious level. And, and it's not even just the analysts who need to be providing information about this. Like, I think they need to speak to the higher ups too and kind of address like the treatment that's kind of going on. And that kind of needs to be monitored more closely because I mean, look, if these people could get into Goldman, they have other options. There's no reason for them to have to stay if they could get treated better elsewhere. So it's really in everybody's best interest to kind of retain their talent. And this is one of the reasons why you see so much turnover in this industry. People are jumping ship, going to different banks left and right for either better hours or better money, or they just think things can be better somewhere else. There's very much like a grass is greener mentality. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think it's brave of these analysts to kind of come forward and hopefully this was a big first step in kind of helping to stop some of the hazing. And even like, it's not even just the higher ups kind of like within these groups who are bossing these analysts around. Like the CEO of Goldman Sachs, his name is David Solomon. And fun fact, he is also a DJ in his free time in Manhattan. Okay. Yeah, he goes by DJ Diesel. And he, he yeah, he does- Less cool, but okay. <laughs> I know, right? It's interesting when you look at what he's been doing his free time, mm -hmm. been doing in his free time, obviously the DJing, but in the past like month or two, he's made four separate trips to the Bahamas on the Goldman Sachs jet. Oh, yeah. that's, that's so nice of him. I know. We love to see people leading by example, right? Yes. So, Indubitably. Yeah. So that's what's kind of been going on on Wall Street. There's kind of a, a big push to make things better for junior analysts, because especially when you look at other industries, like the tech industry, those arguably are pretty long hours too, but at least in tech, they get to wear jeans. They don't wear suits. <laughs> it's, and you get to live in California instead of New York. Like it's just, it's a different environment, but you know, not everybody can code. Some people are good at math. Some people like finance, like myself included. So yeah. You have any more thoughts on this, Alyssa, before I move to our next story? Uh, what you said a minute ago about how people are moving around, I also think that has to go back to uh, younger generations because I personally, I work in a news station with people that have been at the same job for over 20 to 30 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it used to be a very prevalent thing where, 
you get a job and you stay in that job until you basically retire or die. And I really enjoy being a part of a generation that is so open about their struggles. And it's like, if you're uncomfortable where you're at, keep going, you know, you do not have to stay in the same job or the same, you know, career field for the rest of your life. And I really appreciate that. And I think it's what's best for us. I just thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think there's no, like millennials and Gen Z, I feel like really have the mindset that you don't have to wait to accomplish your dreams. You can start working on them now. And there's no time like the present and you don't have to necessarily pay your dues and put in the time, you know, with crappy options, basically. True. You know, like there's, there's no reason to suffer, you know, life is too short. And if you have the ability to get out of a crappy situation, you know, you should do it. So, you know, I, I say hats off to these Goldman analysts for being brave like that. And as somebody who's also in the industry, you know, I stand with you. I understand that police fix culture and how annoying it can be. So with that, I am going to move into my second story. So I feel like this is kind of something that's become a little bit regular. It's pretty periodically we have kind of the big tech Silicon Valley CEOs go to Congress or right now they're, it's all over, you know, Zoom and WebEx and things like that. They're all virtual meetings, mm-hmm. but we've kind of had big tech go testify in front of different committees in front of the House and the Senate to kind of talk about like their competitive advantage or their lack thereof and what's going on and like why, why are they like this? Why is big tech like this? And, you know, all the problems that have been coming up with like big data and, you know, things of that nature, privacy, kind of a monopoly, things like that. So yeah, Facebook, his, the CEO of Facebook, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, as well as the Google CEO, uh, Sundar Pichai, and the Twitter CEO, Jack Dorsey, they all kind of had to have a meeting with the, the House of Representatives last week. Um, and they kind of wanted to talk about how misinformation and disinformation spreads across their various platforms. And they wanted to talk about this because it was shown that disproportionately these were the platforms that were used to kind of discuss the Capitol riots mm. on January 6th. Yes. Um, and kind of how these people got like acquainted with each other. And like, there were a lot of Facebook groups that were being made to discuss plans. Um, there were a lot of videos that were being posted on YouTube, which is owned by Google for those of you who don't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's made you were like, Google, that's not really a social media site. Well, it is because they own YouTube and then also Gmail and Google plus. Google Plus, yeah, and their other, uh, their other suite of products they got. So yeah, um, so these three men kind of had to basically say their piece and people used like the social media platforms also not just for the riots, but there's been a lot of issue with spreading misinformation about COVID in general. Like what is an effective method to treat COVID? What is, you know, how effective are the vaccines? Were they rushed? Things like that. And really there's... People do use social media for news, and I understand that. And I understand that it is typically the most up-to-date source. It is typically filled with a network of people whom you can trust because a lot of it is people you know already. So it's people you feel like you can trust, whether or not they're being truthful or not, who knows. But especially with something like COVID, which is a virus and extremely scientific in nature and something that honestly most of us really don't understand Mm -hmm. on the level that it takes to 
really kind of be working on this, like as a CDC person or as a healthcare worker or anything like that. So that's people have been using like social media to talk about like the effectiveness in the vaccine and like why you should get one or why shouldn't you get one. Um, and it's just kind of causing some problems. Facebook has had to take down thousands and thousands of posts that were spreading misinformation about the vaccine. Google has kind of had to do the same thing on YouTube with some videos about it. Yeah, that's that's kind of what Congress wanted them to come in to talk about. So it's, I think there was also sort of some discussion about how the rise in social media has kind of caused an increase in depression and anxiety, especially among young people. Um, if you guys haven't seen it, there's a pretty good documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma, which, Ooh. have you seen it? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. It's kind of discusses like how the business models of social media companies work and how they get you to continually stay addicted basically to your device and why you're on it all the time and how it can really make you feel isolated because you're just on your phone and you're not really having that in-person contact. And especially right now, you know, with the pandemic going on, there's really not a lot of chance for in-person interaction. It's so your phone is kind of your only option. Mm -hmm. um, so that's been sad, but I don't know, this is hairy, this kind of like misinformation using social media because it kind of gets the first amendment involved and it's a matter of, you know, people have a right to post this stuff, sure, because it's free speech, but if it's gonna cause violence, if it's gonna cause people to die from COVID unnecessarily or anything else for that matter, it's extremely dangerous. And people in Congress think that these big tech companies have an obligation and a big responsibility to kind of monitor what's going on on their platforms and make sure that this stuff isn't completely spreading. And it's a big issue because the business models of these companies, it's all about user engagement and keeping people on the websites and on the applications longer. So yes. when that happens, there's going to be more clicks, you know, there's more ad revenue, like it benefits the companies to have you on Facebook longer to be on Twitter longer, because you're viewing their ads and all their promoted content, and things like that. But there's also a higher likelihood you're going to see kind of some of this misinformation when you're on there longer. And the algorithm on on these websites, it will automatically kind of send you the content that is more extreme because you are more likely to interact with it that way. Of course. Thus increasing the money for the company. So it's kind of like this awful cycle where you're seeing this misinformation to click on it, which makes the company money, which causes violence, which, you know, it's, it's a mess. And what they kind of wanted to talk about with these CEOs was section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So yes. this act... Are you familiar? Yes, I read it this morning. Yes. Okay, good. So basically this section of the Communications Defense Decency Act, excuse me, it shields tech platforms from lawsuits over what users are posting. Basically, okay. the, the companies can't be liable for what their users post, which in theory sounds like a good idea because if some, you know, some if somebody's off the rails and they're just using Facebook or Twitter to talk about whatever, is that really the company's fault? Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? That's, um, you know, that's kind of up for debate. And that's sort of what they really wanted the CEOs to talk about. Like, do you feel you are responsible for this? Do you take any responsibility for misinformation about coronavirus, about the violence that happened at the Capitol? Do you feel personally responsible? And they all kind of skirted the question. And 
they basically gave answers about what they feel that they've been doing to kind of address this issue of like misinformation being spread. So they basically have said that they're trying to put warning labels on things. They're trying to connect people with credible information um, from, you know, like the CDC or the public health department and things like that, as opposed to, you know, any sort of just regular person posting about COVID. So they've done things like that. They're trying to change how groups are recommended on Facebook, just so people aren't automatically sucked into these big extreme one side or the other groups. And there is a piece of legislation that is being introduced by Representative Anna Isu, who is a Democrat from California, and it's being co-sponsored with Representative Tom Malinowski, who's also a Democrat from New Jersey. And basically this bill is proposing that the biggest platforms, so like Google, Facebook, Twitter, that they be stripped of Section 230 immunity if the algorithms that are on their interfaces promote content that is going to lead to violence, which seems honestly like a pretty good piece of legislation to me if it's something that can be kind of enforced and if there really is shown to be kind of a direct correlation between people who are on Facebook and people who are involved in these, these awful things like that. I mean, Google has had to take down 850,000 YouTube videos and blocked nearly 100 million ads. And yes. Facebook has had to do similar about all this misinformation. So it's not like these companies aren't doing anything. They are well aware of the problem and they know that people are kind of abusing the platforms to get their own agenda across basically. But the problem is, is these platforms are so big. I mean, there are so many people on at least one of them, if not all of them. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of data to manage. It's a lot of people, you know, sometimes they're going to have to, they might potentially have to make changes at their own expense. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. When President Trump was still in office, he wanted to completely revoke Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act because he felt that it was protecting the tech companies who were spreading misinformation about like him and his campaign. So everybody feels like they're a victim of misinformation to a certain extent. And honestly, probably everybody is like there's yeah. a decent amount of it out there on, um, on both sides and misinformation spreads six times faster than true information. Of course it does. So this is, this is definitely a big problem. So Alyssa, I want to get your thoughts on this. How do you feel about like bringing the first amendment into it and do these companies have kind of a responsibility to be a little bit more of watchdogs on their users? It is a very hard and fine line between self-expression and freedom of speech because I had to take a class about communication law in college. Basically trying to find the difference between like what is okay and what is not okay to post not only on social media, but just like openly express in your own life. Because, you know, one can just get you a wiggly finger in the face and the other could send you to jail. And it's very hard. Like, I'm not an expert on it by any means. I struggle multiple times a day trying to figure out what is technically hate speech and what is freedom of speech. I do feel as though the tech companies do hold a certain amount of responsibility just to make sure that nothing gets too out of hand because 
you know, this kind of stuff has been happening for far longer than we would like to acknowledge. It did not start with the coup at the Capitol. It did not start when certain people were elected into office. Like it's been going on since the beginning of social media as well as the idea of free speech has been created. But I, I do feel that they, the tech companies do hold a certain amount of responsibility because of, you know, you give people this platform to express yourself on, but at the same time, you know, allowing yourself to be expressed, I guess, mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that you can negate other people's expressions. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think it does. And I think it's different using your First Amendment right to, you know, like if you're just going to like talk to somebody about how you feel about things or what you believe or what your stance on an issue is versus using a platform that allows you to reach such a larger audience. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously the benefit of social media is that it does allow you to kind of reach a larger audience. That's that's why it's become such a big popular tool for news. But it, 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 like the stakes are bigger when you're sharing it with a larger audience. Um, so it's it's obviously on the user in my opinion, for the most part, to be responsible about what they're sharing on a big platform like that, especially if they have a large following. That's why we're constantly seeing celebrities having to like make apologies for things because they'll do something on their platform and realize, oh no, like this was not received well. Like I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have said this, whatever, you know, the case was. And then they in turn use the same platform to apologize for it. Mm-hmm. But so I do think it's on the user, but I agree. I think it's on the companies as well um because i mean the if the connection wasn't clear the whole reason that that capital riot happened was because a lot of these people believed that the election was stolen away from president trump and that he really won the election but it was kind of rigged against him um and president biden ended up winning And they stormed the Capitol on that day to stop the election from being certified by Congress. And that was the whole reason for it. And a lot of this conspiracy about the election being rigged and stolen against President Trump was being spread on these platforms. And Trump himself was talking about it as well on Twitter and thinking, you know, and he had been on the news saying, I went on a landslide, you know, things like that. Um, When in fact, there was, you know, a lot of certification at the state level about what was going on and no the the election was in fact not stolen um but this i mean was one of the most secure elections in the history of the united states yeah absolutely everything was checked and rechecked and rechecked because people were scared of russia interfering absolutely you know, after the 2016 election so um it really was like a secure election and you know it just it didn't work out in some people's favor and they kind of used social media as their mouthpiece to get people on their side and kind of try and make a change. But, you know, violent change like that is not good change. Mm -hmm. I'm all for rallying behind a cause that you believe in and, you know, trying to be a force for good. But this, you know, I mean, people died at the Capitol. Yes. People died, people were gravely injured, people's lives were threatened. It was was a very scary day. Um, And we certainly hope nothing like that happens again. But if these companies kind of don't take more responsibility and further action to kind of get it together and make sure that 
really extreme content is, you know, tamped down a little bit more, I think it's going to continue to be an issue. And I think we're going to see more violence. Mm -hmm. I agree. So that's pretty much all I have for today. I think we'll probably be seeing Zuckerberg and Pichai and Dorsey and, you know, some of the other big tech CEOs. I think we're going to be seeing them with Congress a lot, um, just to discuss things and try and get their input. Um, Representative Michael Doyle, he basically chairs a subcommittee kind of on commerce and technology. And he, he said, all of these platforms have failed to protect users from the consequences of their own creations. And that these platforms were responsible for all of this. And he said, we will make these changes and we can do it with you or without you. <laughs> so, I mean, they ideally would wanna work with the companies and get their input on it because most of these congressional people don't understand, you know, the inner workings of the algorithms and the platforms and all that. So um, they're trying to make more of an alliance so it can benefit everybody as opposed to just these companies being mandated what to do. So we'll, uh, we'll see what happens. But that's all I got for us today. Alyssa, what have you got? Now to stripper polls. <laughs> all right. So if you guys didn't know, Lil Nas X released his highly anticipated new single, Montero, also known as Call Me By Your Name, on Friday, along with the accompanying music video. And yes, I already know all the words. Yes, I have watched the music video multiple times. Annabelle, have you partaken yet? Um, no, I have not had the opportunity. I've seen on Twitter everyone talking about Lil Nas X. Um, and by everyone, I mean Alyssa. Alyssa's very excited about this. So I have not seen it. Um, it's on my to-do list, but I have not, not gotten there yet. Oh my goodness. Okay, well, I'm just going to give you a brief synopsis of what this song is about, what the music video is trying to portray, as well as the overall message that Lil Nas X was trying to like put forth with the release of this song. So mm -hmm. the song was originally previewed in a snippet in a Twitter video back in July of 2020. Mm -hmm. And it was briefly featured in his Logitech commercial from this year's Super Bowl. So this song has been like, we've been waiting for a while. Oh yes. And I'm not gonna say at all that I am the biggest Lil Nas X fan, but I definitely really appreciate what he stands for and the message that he is trying to give out to young queer people, because as you'll find out as I go further into this story, you know, I encourage you to listen to what he has to say about it and what his message was, because there's been a little bit of controversy mm -hmm. surrounding everything, but anyways, um, the song is very reminiscent of, um, it has like Spanish guitar at the beginning and near the end of the song, the art that promoted for the single is obviously a play on Michelangelo's The Creation of Adam with, you know, Lil Nas X reaching out with his fingers towards each other. It was done by Spanish creation artist, Philippe Coustic, uh, who is also, I believe, a queer artist themselves. They do a okay. lot of really interesting, cool work. Obviously the title references Lil Nas's birth name, Montero, but also the 2017 film, Call Me By Your Name, starring Timothy Chalamet and He Who Must Not Be Named. Oh yes. Have you seen Call Me By Your Name? 
again on my list haven't gotten there yet <laughs> really cool i film. am actually the worst about watching movies and Alyssa can attest to that she will force me to sit down and watch something with her if i haven't seen it yet i do do that a lot um <laughs> i watch call me by your name by myself in the darkness of my bedroom i believe like in the middle of a very busy week for me but like i turned all the lights off i watched it on my computer and i sobbed um oh. so it it did things to me um it's emotional it's very emotional and you know it it doesn't go without its own controversies but i'm not going to focus on that i'm just going to focus on the song this week um with the release of the song, Lil Nas X dedicated it to his younger self with a very long post, which I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I do want to read this little snippet because not going to lie, it got to me. Mm-hmm. Quote, I know we promised to never be that type of gay person. I know we promised to die with the secret, but this will open doors for many other queer people to simply exist. Aww. No, right? Get you right here in the, in the feels. This is an example of using your platform for positive change. Absolutely. Not and, violent change. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. And the music video, if you haven't seen it, it heavily plays off of biblical references. Like it starts out, he's like in the Garden of Eden and he's tempted by the snake. And it's very much like heaven and hell, good versus evil. And I really appreciated this because, you know, when you think of the Garden of Eden, you obviously go to sin, pleasure, bad things, you know. Snakes, fruit. Snakes, fruit. Naked people, yeah. Naked people. Oh, no. But I really liked it because the way I saw it was he starts off on this journey and he's like, oh, I'm being tempted by evil. (gasps) But then he flips it and uses this song to disparage the concealment of queer identities and mocks biblically based homophobia because, okay. you know, we, we all, I'm, I'm not trying to be political or mock anyone's religion here, but I do not agree with the idea of people saying like, you're going to hell if you're queer but then being okay with all these other types of sins. Right. And because homophobia is always like the first one that people bring out, you know, like it's, it's always gay people are going to hell first. And I really appreciate that he used this imagery to tell his story and say, I'm living my life the way I want to. You're the one and a, you being the person that he's trying to get with who is not comfortable with being themselves, you're the one living a lie because you're not living right, you know? Right. And it has brought on a lot of like controversies from Twitter. You know, he's gotten into a couple of little fights on the platform with Candace Owens, Caitlin Bennett. That's the gun like, girl, right? Yes. And Candace Owens is a conservative Republican political figure. I don't really know what she does. That's I'm not trying to start a fight with her. I just really don't know what she does, but she's a commentator and a conservative author, talk show host and political commentator. There you go. There we go. I grew up in a Baptist household 
And I don't really subscribe to the Baptist beliefs anymore because I personally, once again, this is personal. I do not believe in scaring people into believing what you believe. Mm-hmm. And to me, the whole hell kind of landscape has always been that way. Like it's never like, it's never a casual talk when it comes to hell. No. Like it's always fire, brimstone, eternity, anger. You know, it's very yeah. intense. It's the fear. It's, it's the fear. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And as a child, obviously you're going to do whatever it takes to stay away from the big bad hell. But as you grow older, you realize, you know, this is just a way of that some people have used to control yourself. And I really like that little Nas X used this imagery because he's showing young queer children that you do not have to be afraid. You can live your life and not be afraid of these people because they no longer have control over you. And that's what I really appreciate. It also is just a very refreshing view of Black queerness in uh, rap and hip hop, honestly, because, you know, the music industry as a whole is not great when it comes to homophobia or just queer lives in general, but especially the rap and hip hop communities have been very, you know, very masculine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes hyper masculine hyper like focused on gender roles so I really appreciate artists like Frank Ocean and Lil Nas X who take their opportunity and take their platform to really you know say this is who I am and just because I'm a rapper does not mean that I have to be hyper masculine at all times like everyone has a masculine and a feminine side to them and it doesn't mean that because one exists the other cannot so I just, I really like, I know a lot of people are thinking like, man, she, she got all of this from a music video where a man strips on a pole, like in thigh high boots. Yes, I did. I really did. <laughs> and it just really got to me because, you know, I've, I've been that person. I've been that scared little girl in the closet going to church not ready to tell my parents because I didn't know what they were going to think of me because they were highly religious and hiding a part of myself for so long that I honestly forgot about it because not to get too much about myself, but I identify as queer and I also am attracted to the opposite sex as well. And I buried that part of myself for so long that I almost forgot that I was queer. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm attracted to cis gendered men too like this isn't a thing that has to be real and it wasn't until college that I really like sat down with myself and had a talk like this where it was like it's okay you can breathe easy now because no one is judging you and it led me to like come out to my family my brother my sister-in-law my parents and everyone has been so welcoming like I was lucky enough to have a very positive coming out story. And I I know that I recognize the privilege in that, but just being able to be yourself and not have to edit your speech around the people that you love is so, so comforting and so healing. And I, yeah, I just, that, (laughs) so I had, I had an emotional week with Lil Nas X. (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing that with us, Alyssa. I mean, that's always nice to get, you know, some personal content in there too. I hope also that I, I feel like there is kind of this idea that you cannot be part of the LGBTQ community and you cannot also be Christian. And I think that's a reason why a lot of people stay 
in the closet um, about, you know, their sexual orientation, because if they feel like they have to choose between that and their religious beliefs, you know, maybe the religious beliefs have given them a great amount of comfort and community and purpose like over the years and they're just not willing to give that up which is completely understandable but I hope like with this Christian imagery in the video I hope it kind of demonstrated at least a little bit to people that being Christian and being part of the LGBTQ community are not mutually exclusive absolutely not you can still if you want you can still be a practicing Christian and identify Mm -hmm. as a queer person yeah. it doesn't have to be one or the other and not even necessarily like christianity subscribing to any b- religion because mm-hmm. i know plenty of queer people that love god or love another being like have a very deep relationship with their religions and it's beautiful like just because i don't agree with like baptist teachings like i do personally believe that there is a god out there you know i'm going through you know, my own religious and spiritual journey. And now being able to see, you know, the image of religion that is accepting and loving of mm-hmm. all people. It's, it's very, it's very healing. Yeah. I think like both sexuality and spirituality slash religion, they're just such intimate, personal parts of people's identity. And you just, People just need to stay in their lane, in my opinion, and really do do what's best for them because you're the only one who can make that choice for you. So everyone just needs to be a little bit more uh, gracious, in my opinion. Also, daily reminder, what people do in their personal lives is none of your business. Right. So not Annabelle specifically, but just like in general, you know, like there shouldn't be any cause for people to be so upset about what Lil Nas X is doing in his spare time, you know? He's an artist. He's trying to express himself. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So my next segment is a little shorter, but I just wanted to highlight someone who made my childhood amazing. And that is Miss Beverly Cleary. Oh, yes. Who we... I saw this and I was so sad. I read all of her books. I know. So I just wanted to give a little time to talk about her because I know a lot of people um, when the news broke were probably like, didn't she die like five years ago? No, she didn't. She was 104. Queen. Queen behavior right there. So Beverly Atlee Bunn, which in my opinion is the best name ever. Beverly Atlee Bunn was born April 12th, 1916 in McMinnville, Oregon to a farmer and a school teacher, which I had to mention because it me. (laughs) You were born to a farmer and a school teacher. I was in fact. (laughs) So I just wanted to put that in there. She initially found reading to be very boring as a child because Mm -hmm. she didn't feel that the stories that were being given to her or presented to her, uh, they were predictable and she could not relate to them because they weren't stories about ordinary people. Mm -hmm. And I love that. She came across a book set called The Dutch Twins when she was in elementary school, which set off a new era for her. And by sixth grade, teachers were suggesting that she consider a career in writing because she was, she was always in the library. Like she literally was like, I, w- I was always up in that bitch. Like I, I, I didn't leave, <laughs> which I love. Okay. After, 
intellectual Queen Beverly. After she graduated from high school, she worked as a children's librarian, a post librarian at a U.S. Army hospital, and a bookshop worker before settling on a career as a full-time writer. Her first book, Henry Huggins, was published in 1950, and it was based off of, once again, the ordinary lives of children around the country, and as well as her own childhood. Um, I don't know if you remember this, Annabelle, but do you remember Click-A-Cat Street? I do. That's okay. Really yeah. Exactly. Did you know that's a real place? No, but that makes sense. I feel like a lot of it was kind of derived from her experiences. I, I remember growing up and being like, that is the weirdest damn word that people come up with. It's like, just with like a K, it just like looks like childish almost. Yeah, it's yeah. a real street in Portland, I believe, because her whole, she grew yeah, up in Oregon. Yeah. So the, this is a little fun fact. Henry Huggins, the book was initially rejected by her publisher. So she went back and added a few characters. Do you know who they were? Would they be Ramona and Beezus? They were, those were, Ramona and Beezus were an afterthought initially, but then became two of her most famous characters. And proof that adding women to the equation makes everything better. Obviously, Henry and Ribsy. No, I'm just, <laughs> I have nothing against them. She initially resisted the request to write about a kindergartner, aka Ramona, because she had not attended kindergarten and she was like, I don't know, I don't know anything about doing that. Like, I don't want to write about something I know nothing about, which we appreciate. You know, she, she was like, I know my limits. I know what I can and cannot do. But she changed her mind after giving birth to twins. Oh, I know. I, I can't, I didn't write it down, but I'm pretty sure their names were like Malcolm and I don't know if it was Malcolm and Marie. I know that's a movie that just came out, but one of them's name was Malcolm and the other ones also started with an M. Over her lifetime, she published numerous amounts of books, including two memoirs, which were titled A Girl from Yam Hill, because that was the community that she grew up in in 1988, and a secondary memoir titled My Own Two Feet in 1995. There are statues of her legendary characters like Henry, Ribsy, Ramona, Beezus, I think Otis Spofford as well in the Beverly Cleary Sculpture Garden in Portland's Grant Park. And the same neighborhood where the sculpture garden is actually renamed their K through eight school, Beverly Cleary School in 2008. Aw. And fun fact, she actually attended that school. So she was like, I've been here. I've done that. I got a school named after me. Bam. Go for her. Yes. Also, I looked it up. Her children were named Malcolm and Marianne. So oh, were, so close. You were close. Yeah. And double M's on her twins. So but. close. Also, fun fact, she published three books based on the Leave it to Beaver television series. I don't think I knew that. I Which didn't either. I'm pretty sure it was like a promotional event. Like the show was being published. So they were like, world-renowned children's author Beverly uh, Cleary come write books for us I think she based them off of like three different episodes also I don't know if you know this Annabelle but when it was on Netflix Leave it to Beaver was my go-to binge show I love that show this is old school I really am I love Leave it to Beaver it just makes me happy <laughs> it's um, cute. I wanted to ask what is your personal favorite Beverly Cleary book Oh, you beat me to the punch. I was going to ask you this. <laughs> um, okay, so the two I remember the most were, 
uh, Ramona Quimby, age eight, which is the one where she cracks the he- the egg on her head. Yes. It's supposed to be hard boiled and it ends up just being like a raw egg and she's like in school as a third grader with egg in her hair, which is obviously a nightmare for anybody. Egg on your face. Yeah, egg on the face. Yeah. And then Ramona's world, which is when she turns 10. And I just remember she always wants to do like the rings at the playground. And for her birthday cake, instead of icing, they put whipped cream on it. Oh. Yeah, I remember enjoying those. I liked the Ramona and the Beezus and Ramona series. I mean, Henry Mm -hmm. Huggins was aight, but you know. (laughs) He fine, whatever. And I didn't have any brothers, so I, I like the female stories better. They're more fun for me. Oh, see, like when I, when I was growing up, I definitely was a Ramona. Like that's just who I was. But I also like semi-related to Henry. Like I remember like thinking he was like the coolest when he got like his own paper route and like oh, yeah. was just going around like being friends with everyone. My personal favorite book, however, is Ramona Forever where her aunt gets married to that guy that was like in Saudi oh, Arabia. Yes, I forgot that one, yeah. Mm. And then he would always go, Ramona. Like Ramona, exactly, yeah. And, yeah. Like she, and she's like mad because the, the guy that her aunt wants to marry is like her best friend's uncle. And she's like, we're gonna be related now and it was was just great and it was I believe it was one of if not the last book in the Ramona series so it was a really nice like little it was a nice little bow on everything to to tie it up yeah I I think that's funny you related to Ramona because I related to Beezus because I'm the oldest (laughs) of two daughters my sister not so much anymore unless she still has her moments but she was she's a mischievous little kid and that's what Ramona was and Beezus was like the sensible boring one which is very much me so I think I kind of resonated with her a little bit more but I'm glad that like we're still best friends and we got different things out of the books but we still like you know can cherish them together you know you're not boring thanks and to go off of that I am the youngest of two children uh my brother is definitely a Henry Huggins type very much like out there doing it on his own. I actually, hold on one second. I think another funny moment I remember from one of the Ramona books, Beezus goes to like her first co-ed party and she gets all dressed up for it and she wears hiking boots. Oh, queen. Do you remember that? She wore like a blouse and a skirt and hiking boots. And they were like, you wanna change your shoes, Beezus? And she's like, no, everybody wears these, duh. Literally my fashion sense. I wanted to show you this, but I have like an old school Ramona the Pest copy. I don't even know when this book was published. Let's see. Or not published, but like printed. The 60s, maybe? 1982. Oh, wow. Okay. It's an old baby. This used to belong to my brother, which is why I have it. But I held on to it because I was like, it's a Ramona book. I have to have this. No, I kind of want to reread them now, like thinking back about this. Like those were fun enjoyable books um they have the little like I'm sorry this is such a visual like aid but like they have the little like illustrations in it oh and the little the baby oh god I'm sorry I'm having a what did they name the baby Roberta Roberta Uh uh-huh and they they their cat's name was picky 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 yeah that's right and like oh my god and they would go eat at the Whopper burger for special yes and freaking uh Ramona would always do her cues like the back of a little cat with the things oh oh my god yeah I'm like rereading this (laughs) 
excuse us for getting nostalgic on our own podcast here that's what i wanted that's what i wanted for this episode because like yes she lived a great fulfilling life but she gave us so many great memories and so many great characters and i just i my mom was a librarian like she literally worked in the library of my elementary school growing up so every day after school was over i'd go and like sit in the library and read until she was ready to go home so I have a very deep connection to Beverly Cleary yeah I used to go to the library with like both my parents a lot pretty frequently on the weekends because having fun isn't hard when you've got a (laughs) library card hell no (laughs) all right Alyssa do you have anything else for us this week are you ready to wrap this up no that's pretty much it for me honestly All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us for another episode. We will be back. Sorry, we were a little bit late on the posting of this one. Alyssa and I had some scheduling conflicts, but we're still out here cranking out content for you guys. Um, So thank you for listening and we will be back next week. Yay!